Hey, Chicago. Cousin Subs is now open on 120 West Madison Street in the Loop. For over 45 years, we've been catering to parties of all sizes. From small groups to groups of more than 10,000, we have the options and expertise to do the work for you. Our customizable catering lineup includes 12 or 20-piece party boxes, two-foot party subs, party salads, party soups, party chips, and cookie boxes for dessert. So enjoy the party. Leave the rest to us. Order online for pickup or delivery at CousinSubs.com. Cousin Subs Catering. Believe in better. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Climbing the Ivy on the Fan Sided Network. This is your host, Alex Pat, alongside Adam McGinnis. We have a very, very special guest today. We have author Doug Wilson. He is coming out with a new book about Ernie Banks called Let's Play 2, The Life and Times of Ernie Banks. That is coming out later this month, so we're going to have him on. He's going to talk about writing the book and other things that the book is really about. So you don't want to miss this. We will also later on have some DH talk and some proposed rules that a lot of people may not be in agreements with, and I'm sure Adam is planning to say about that and some other things. So uh, let's get right into it. Uh, first of all, my co-host, Adam, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing great. And now I would like to introduce Doug Wilson. Doug, how are you tonight? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're very happy to have you. So uh, we would just like to get in and talk about your book, Let's Play 2, The Life and Times of Ernie Banks. And as I promised before the show, Adam, you get to ask the first question. Yeah, uh, first, I just want to thank Doug for coming on. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. Um, I wanted to, to ask first um, if in your book you shed some light on the relationship between Ernie Banks and Leo DeRocher, because it seems like they had kind of an interesting uh, uh, dynamic back in the day. Well, yeah, you're, you're jumping right into the to the meat of the start. Yeah. I think that's the, the greatest story. You know, if you sat down with a piece of paper and said, let's take the two most different people and throw them in a 20-foot dugout, and not let either one of them leave for four or five years and see what happens. I mean, you couldn't have picked two more difficult, different people. You know, Leo literally hated nice guys. That was the title of his book, Nice Guys Finish Last. And Ernie Banks was the nice guy. You know, him and Brooks Robinson were the acknowledged most nice guys in baseball. And so you knew something was going to happen. And, you know, in Leo's defense, when he came in, he wanted to make the team into his image. He liked the fast guys who steal, butt, hit, and run. And at that point, you know, Ernie's best days were behind him. His knees were gone. And so he couldn't do those sorts of things. And the other thing with Leo, of course, is he always had to be the alpha male. And he's coming to a team that has a guy sitting on the bench that is literally named after the team, Mr. Cup. And so that, that kind of drove him crazy, too. And so, you know, all those things thrown together. And, you know, at first Leo tried to trade Ernie. He wanted to get rid of him, get somebody in that uh, had fresher legs. And basically, P.K. Wrigley just told him, you know, no way, that's not going to happen. You know, Wrigley was never, ever going to let Ernie Banks get traded. And so... So Leo thought the next best thing is, uh, you know, I'll try to humiliate him, shame him off the field. And he really worked hard at that. You know, he got all over Ernie uh, for things that didn't even need to be gotten on him for. Just constantly uh, humiliating him in front of his teammates, in front of the media. And uh, to Ernie's credit, he never said anything. And I think that the whole episode kind of is very revealing about Ernie's temperament and personality. He was the kind of guy who you just could not make mad. Um, I never found evidence that he ever had a forceful face-to-face disagreement with another human being. You know, he got along with everybody. If somebody got out of hand, he just walked away. And that's the way he did with Leo. You know, he took everything Leo gave him. He just smiled. uh, 
most of the time he would come over in the dugout, sit right next to Leo with a big smile on his face. And Ernie never said anything about the relationship for years and years. He always dodged the questions until he was he was pretty old, and finally he just said, you know, uh, I was killing him with kindness. You know, that was Ernie's strategy. He knew Leo hated him. And, uh, you know, rather than drop to that level, Ernie's plan was just kill him with kindness, and, that, and that's what he did. Interesting you mentioned here that as, as tough as Leo was on Ernie, uh, that, that Banks seemed to take the high road. Did those two ever end up getting closer at any point later down the road? Um, I wouldn't say close, and, and I, don't, I don't know that many people got close to Leo. Uh, you know, he was the kind of guy, he, he kept his players at a distance. Um, you know, a, after the first couple of years, and, you know, Leo tried to bring in guys every year. He would bring two or three rookies, trade for people, trying to bench Ernie. And Ernie just kept hitting and hitting and couldn't get him out of the lineup. So Leo finally you know, reluctantly agreed that Ernie could still play, and Ernie had uh, about four pretty productive years for Leo. In Leo's uh, autobiography that came out about 1975, he really ripped Ernie bad. He had a, an entire chapter dedicated to trying to destroy Ernie's image. But uh, late in, in Leo's life, uh, you know, Randy Hunley had the, the Cubs fantasy camps, down there, they still have them. But uh, one year, er, uh, Leo was at the camp. It was the mid '80s. Leo was uh, had just had heart surgery, um, you know. And, and doctors noted it may surprise a lot of writers. He did find a heart during the surgery. But uh, you know, perhaps Leo was having uh, signs of his own mortality. But he got up at a banquet at the end of the camp and uh, in tears apologized to all those guys, Santo, Williams, Jenkins, all those guys from those years uh, apologized for how he treated them, and he specifically apologized to how he treated Ernie Banks. And so uh, uh, there was a little bit of contrition there at the end on Leo's part. Can you tell us a little bit about Ernie's career, kind of when he came up from the Kansas City Monarchs, because from what I understand is he served in the U.S. military, then he played with the Monarchs, and then he came with the Cubs. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what that transition was like for him? Um, yeah, well, it was it was huge. Um, you know, Ernie uh, went to the Kansas City Monarchs as a teenager. The, the day he graduated high school, he got on a bus and went to Kansas City. And so he played with them in 1950. Um, his first, his roommate was Elston Howard that year, but uh, then he got drafted, and so he went in the army for two years. And when he got out of the army, he went back to the Monarchs for one year. That was 1953, and that might have helped the Cubs uh, uh, land him because uh, Ernie spent most of those two years in Europe, so he was sort of under the radar of the other major league teams, and a lot of teams didn't have stuff on him. When he came back in 53, he was by far the best player in the Negro Leagues that year. And uh, the, the Cubs scouted him and actually re-scouted him and had checkers, about 10 different guys for the Cubs scouted him. So they knew what they were getting, and they knew he was good. And uh, they they brought him up to the – they bought him uh, $25,000 for Ernie Banks and, a, and another pitcher from the Monarchs who went to their minors with – was a pretty good deal if you look at it but so uh he he went he played a game with the monarchs in mid-september got on a in pittsburgh got on a plane flew to chicago the next day he was wearing a chicago cubs uniform that's pretty amazing to see how many things he did in such a short amount of time at a young age he was with the monarchs and then you know he was in the army and then back to the monarchs and then in the major leagues now, kind of in his, his prime, when he won back-to-back -back MVPs, the first-ever National League player to do so, you know, he was obviously hitting for average, for power, driving in runs. And then in his later years, you know, he was still putting up some decent numbers, but the numbers were definitely dropping. Do you think that uh, his legs had a really big effect uh, towards the end of his career? Because I know he did have some issues with those. Yeah, absolutely, um, and, and that's really one of the tragedies. 
Ernie Banks from 1955 to 1960, over a six-year period, he was the best slugger in the game of baseball, bar none. You know, he had more home runs, RBIs than Mano, Mays, Aaron, anybody, you know, and, and quite a bit more. Nobody was close to it. And, but then in 61, his knees started really going bad. And that's when the Cubs had to move him to, to first base, the wear and tear mm -hmm. of, of all the constant stops and stuff for shortstop. If if his knees hadn't gone bad, he easily would have had 600 home runs. You know, if he had kept – because he was outpacing Aaron and Mays. You know, if he had kept that up, he could have had 600, 650 home runs easy. But uh, – and, and that's unfortunate. A lot of people remember – the old Ernie Banks of the 1960s who couldn't run anymore, and they forget just how good he was in his prime. But, uh, you know, he did still have some solid seasons, 37, 32 homers, several years of 100 RBIs in the 60s, but he couldn't run anymore. Um, you, you know, he, he would hit, hit the ball. If it didn't go out, he got a single, basically. You know, he would take a, a two-foot lead off of base. He knew he wasn't going to steal or anything. And uh, he, he had a good glove around first. He was uh, talking to the guys he played with. They said nobody was ever better at scooping balls out of the dirt than Ernie Banks. He, he had a shortstop's hands at first base. But he couldn't, you know, a couple steps either direction. It was all the range he had by the end. And so, like I said, his knees definitely uh, played a major role in, in – curtail on his production. Uh, Doug, there is, there's one other thing that I, I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit. I, I think not a, a ton of Cubs fans know this, but there was a brief period where the Cubs did not have a manager. And did Ernie Banks serve as a, a player coach during that time? Um, no, you know, it was the, the infamous College of Coaches, uh, you know, P.K. Wrigley, the owner, he was uh, kind of a strange bird sometimes, and he didn't like the term manager. And uh, so in 1961, they, they just announced, we're not having a manager. We're going to have a – and they called it the College of Coaches. It was a rotating uh, – they had ten guys who were coaches, and the plan was that ever so often a new guy would be the head coach, everybody else would be – uh, assistant coaches and, and the same coaches would go through the minors and stuff. It was a miserable failure, uh, as you might expect, because nobody was in charge. You just got to have one guy to make the calls. But um, Ernie was not a, a coach during that period. Um, they they brought in Buck O'Neill, and he was a coach uh, for uh, one of the seasons. But um, Leo did make Ernie a player coach in 1968. And, uh, in fact, Ernie was the, the third African-American ever to be a major league coach behind Buck O'Neill and, and Gene Baker. Uh, but so um, that, that, unfortunately, it was pretty obvious to everybody that that was one of Leo's schemes to try to get Ernie off the field. He thought if he made him a player coach that – that would give a good excuse to leave him in the dugout. Didn't didn't work because Ernie still kept playing and hitting, um, so he didn't do a lot of coaching, uh, even though he held the title. Did Ernie Banks ever in his career, or maybe after it, probably more likely after it when he would look back on it, but did he ever, ever mention any sadness or ever express regret that he and his team never got to a postseason when he was there? Um, yeah, obviously that's for years that was the major association. Somebody would say Ernie Banks. The next statement was always, you know, the greatest player to never make it to the postseason, and that was just something that hung around his neck. It, it did bother him. It probably bothered him a lot more than he ever said, because one of the things about Ernie is he just almost never ever said anything that wasn't positive. Uh, that was just what you know. Media people would dance around, do everything they could, trying to get those sorts of statements, and he just wouldn't do it. If you get too close, he would turn the interview around and ask you questions or change the subject or say, hey, it's a beautiful day out there. Let's play, too. But so you couldn't get a bad statement out of Ernie most of the time. But 
uh, you know, close associates, friends. And when he got older, he did open up a little more. And, I, and obviously that was, uh, you know, very disappointing to him. The, the end of the 69 season was devastating to him. He, he said once that, you know, after they were eliminated, he was driving home on Lakeshore Drive by himself, and he just finally pulled off and cried. You know, he felt so bad because they, they were so close. And he knew that that was going to be his last chance, probably. So, you know, that, that was something that he always regretted. But usually when he would talk, again, he would, you know, rephrase it that he was always thankful that he got to play and thankful that he had a chance to do as good as he did. But, uh, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, in, in the modern system, maybe he might have in 69, 70, uh, you know, if they'd had wild cards and stuff like that, they might have gotten in in at least some of the postseason. Uh, Ernie, as as a lot of Cubs fans know, Ernie Banks was the first African American player uh, to play for the Chicago Cubs. That um, even though he he came into the league after the color barrier had already been broken, uh, it, it still w- was not an easy time for African Americans. I'd imagine. Uh, do you know how fans of the Cubs initially received him when he when he came to the Cubs? Most fans treated him pretty well, um, but uh, you know that you can't avoid that subject when you're talking about Ernie Banks because obviously it did influence uh, it influenced everything. And uh, you know when he came in, it was six years after Jackie Robinson, so people weren't. Uh, you know, shocked and amazed at seeing an African American on a, on a baseball field, so he didn't get near the level of an open abuse that Jackie got, or some of the few guys after him. Um, but there were obviously still quite a few rednecks around. I mean, there's still some now. And so, you know, he heard some bad words. He he uh, got some letters uh, written to him. He you know heard and saw the N word thrown around uh, way more than anybody should and and so that that had to weigh on him when, when he came in he, they weren't allowed he wasn't him and gene baker couldn't stay at the hotel with the the team in st louis um they, they could everywhere else in the league initially but you know in spring training down in in arizona uh, and after spring training they would play their way through texas and mississippi on their way back up to chicago and so you know, they saw, uh, faced a, an awful lot of, of stuff. Um, yeah, and when Houston came into the league, one of the, the players, Dick Ellsworth, uh, told me, you know, he still remembers to this day the first time the team went into Houston, 1962. They went into the hotel, and the manager uh, came out and said they couldn't stay there. They, you know, at the time, they had uh, Ernie and Billy Williams and uh, George Altman. But... You know, so the things like that are things that uh, never really went away throughout his whole career. There was always that uh, subject, uh, unfortunately. What was Ernie Banks's life like, kind of as an ambassador to the Cubs in the city of Chicago after he retired? Now, I've heard stories that when Dallas Green came aboard that he kind of wanted to steer away from like old nostalgic Cubs like Ernie Banks because they wanted a new winning mentality. Did that affect his relationship with the Cubs at all? And what was his relationship like with the Cubs kind of throughout the years after he retired? Well, he was Mr. Cub. And so, you know, he was probably the best ambassador anybody ever had for, for a team. And, and he embraced that role. He, he worked to create that image and, uh, you know, he was always up, always positive, couldn't do enough for everybody. I mean, he, he was, a, I think, basically he was the kind of guy who wanted people to like him. And he went out of his way to do that. I mean, he would always just calling out to strangers, talking to everybody, talking to anybody, talking and, you know, always being happy. Um, and so uh, P.K. Wrigley had always said, Ernie Banks is always going to have a position with the Cubs as long as I'm alive. And he kept his word to that. Ernie was always on the payroll somewhere, most of the time in PR, selling season tickets, uh, you know, basically getting paid to be Ernie Banks, and, and he was he was great at it. It was never full-time jobs, but, 
And then when uh, uh, P.K. Wrigley passed on, his son took over and kept the same policy as far as Ernie. After the Wrigley sold out, though, uh, as you mentioned, Dallas Green, he did want to kind of purge the old uh, mojo of the old loser uh, losing teams. And so, uh, you know, 83, 84, um, you know, he did pretty much get rid of all the old hands, and, and that included Ernie Banks. Uh, I think at the time Ernie was getting paid about $20,000 uh, to do PR work for the Cubs, and and they uh, they let him go. You know, they said, uh, you know, he had missed some meetings. They, you know, they trumped up some charges, but uh, basically he was wanting to move in a different direction, I think. And there was a huge outcry uh, all over the country. Everybody just ripped the Cubs to pieces over dumping Ernie. Ernie himself didn't say anything bad, which, again, he never did. Some people close to him, you know, told reporters that obviously Ernie was very hurt when they did that. And, uh, Ernie came out, his only public statement was, he said, I, I feel I'll always be a Chicago Cub and, and I'll be here whenever they want me and, and I hope we can get back together. And uh, the next year, 84, when the Cubs uh, won their division, they reached out to Ernie and, and actually he got to sit in the dugout and go out on the field uh, with the team in the playoffs. And so they... Uh, Ernie and the Cubs organization made up, and uh, after that, he was uh, on the Cubs payroll till the day he died. And uh, but like I said, he was he was great at it. Any any time you needed anything for the Cubs, Ernie Banks was there. So I kind of wanted to get into your book itself. Again, it's called "Let's Play Two: The Life and Times of Ernie Banks." How long did it take you to kind of do the research and put this book together? Because, you know, obviously there is a lot to the life of Ernie Banks. So, you know, I figured it took a lot of research and work at this. Yeah, and, and there was a lot to the life of Ernie Banks that uh, isn't isn't really out there that you had to dig for. And he was, a, because of his image, because of the image that he worked to project, you know, he, he never really told the whole story. If you just, you know, and I went through hundreds of interviews that Ernie had done, and, uh, you, you know, he, he would never say anything bad about anybody or anything, which obviously there were some bad things that uh, happened to him or unfortunate situations. And so it took a lot of digging. Um, it probably took, I, I probably spent maybe three years, four years, um, one of the things that I really wanted to do was talk to people who grew up with him uh, in Dallas. He, he grew up in the segregated uh, neighborhood in Jim, uh, you know, in Dallas. Uh, he came from a very, very poor family, and it took me a while, but I, I lucked out and I found uh, several guys who grew up with Ernie. Uh, you know, one played football with him in high school. One was a, a good buddy when they were seven, eight years old. And these guys were great, uh, you know, just listening to how things were back then. And and uh, and, and I found uh, three guys who played with him on the Monarchs, uh, just to, again, find out how, how he was, what the conditions were. You know, people now, we can't look back and say how we would have felt under some of the situations that they went to. You You just can't. And so it was really invaluable listening to these guys talk. And uh, I learned a lot uh, just about, you know, not just about baseball and about Ernie. I just learned a lot listening to these guys. And so that was really important to, to get all of that information down. And, and then I tried to track down as many players who played with him to get their opinions. And it was really interesting listening to people talk about how he was when he came to the team versus uh, – in his later years, uh, I talked to one guy named Bob Talbot who goggled the day that Ernie got there. He, he had been playing for the Los Angeles Angels. And they called him up. And, you know, the, the guys, when Ernie first came in, they said he couldn't get a word out of him. You know, his first couple of years, he hardly never talked to anybody other than Gene Baker. You know, he was a nice guy. If you went up and talked to him, he would smile, you know, give a couple word answer, and then try to bolt as soon as he he had that so he was very shy when he first came up. Yeah, yeah. And so it was amazing seeing the transformation just in five years of the personality. 
between the you know the shy kid, not sure where he belongs, uncertain in the suddenly thrust in the world of white people, um, and then go from that to three four years be the toast of a city of three million people. Uh, that was pretty amazing. Listen to the guys tell about that. Uh, so the beginning of the title of your book is Let's Play 2, and that's obviously one of Ernie's most famous lines. Can you tell us anything about the, the origin of that quote and what was going on that day? Um, well, I did a lot of research into that, and that that's a, a – you know, you hate to give away everything, but – you know, nobody really knows what was going on that day because nobody knows when it originated. Most of all, the guy who said it, Ernie, doesn't even know. You know, after uh, he got into the Hall of Fame, of course, he became famous for that line. And every single interview seems like after that, somebody would ask, uh, when did you first say that, Ernie? And, and over the course of the years, he gave four different answers to when. The, the one that he settled on that he seemed to like best was, uh, sometime during the 1969 season, it was a really hot day. The team needed a pick-me-up, and Ernie came in and said that. Uh, other times he said he said it on opening day 1969. The problem with those two dates is it's in print in uh, two magazine articles that came out in February of 1969. So obviously he said it before for them, so that rolls those two out. Uh, and other, other times he said he said it in 1967, the first uh, time the Cubs were really in the, the pennant race. And, and it could have been there. I asked several of the guys who played with him, when did they first hear it? The guys who played with him in 53, 54, 55, they said, you know, they never heard him say it. You know, he never heard him say hardly anything. One guy who just played in 56 with the Cubs said, you know, Ernie would be real excited the day before a doubleheader. He'd be running around telling everybody, that, uh, you know, better bring your lunchbox tomorrow. We're going to be here all day. But but he didn't say let's play too. So, but one of Buck O'Neill's favorite stories occurred in uh, when Buck was a, a coach, which was 62. They went into Houston, and it was before the Astrodome, so the Houston's field was really hot uh, outside. He said just a miserable hot steaming day. Ernie was running around saying, let's play two guys. And then Ernie passed out between the games of a doubleheader. <laughs> and so after the game, Buck goes, uh, uh, great day to play two, huh, Ernie? And Ernie goes, they're always a great day, Buck. Only some are better than others. <laughs> but uh, George Altman repeated that story, too. And so uh, that was probably the same day. So that, that narrows it down to, to 62 he was doing it. And one of his teammates, uh, Jerry Kendall, uh, played with the team from 57 to 62, and he said he definitely remembers Ernie saying that. So he said that most likely sometime 58, 59 to 62. Is, and most likely Ernie just said it a few times, liked the way it sounded. A few people picked it up, and then over the years, you know, it, it mushroomed into this big thing. But uh, So the long answer to your question is no, nobody really knows knows when. That's really interesting because, yeah, kind of like what you were just saying, I heard several stories on how that quote originated, and I didn't really know which one is true. So, yeah, no, it's, I'm really yeah. glad and, uh, that uh, – yeah, so And all the, all the stories are, are, are <laughs> false. <laughs> but uh, – and that, that's one of the things about Ernie is his image was so great. Over the years, so many myths grew up about him, and they were unsourced myths, you know, without any – uh, factual basis, but they just got picked up and repeated and picked up and repeated, and then they became common knowledge. And mm -hmm. so that was one of the things that I wanted to do with the book is, uh, you know, find out exactly what the truth was, and especially Ernie's personality. Yeah, again, a lot of people thought, well, nobody can be this nice. It's obviously an act. And that was one of the things that I asked everybody that, had kind of in contact with him as former friends, players, and asked about his image and, uh, you know, how true was that. And and so that that was kind of uh, interesting to find that out. You know, it's it's funny. You brought up George Altman several times, and, you know, I've, I've done a lot of research about 
different Cubs players over the years because I like to write about different Cubs players. And I felt like George Altman was kind of an underrated piece of that Cubs core for a while. Did you get a chance at all to talk to him? Um, yes. Uh, he's he's still around, lives near St. Louis. Uh, a really great guy. Um, you know, he's, uh, I would say, 80, maybe mid-80s now, but uh, uh, just a good, good guy, really helpful. And uh, he was pretty close to Ernie and uh, shared some experiences and um, – but but you you're right he was a great player he had two really really solid years uh 25 27 homers um you know good rbi man he got caught up in the uh you know the cubs were always trying to trade guys to get pitchers um you know classically Lou Brock but uh you know George had a few good years, and they, and they traded him trying to get a good pitcher out of him because they always had good hitting. They had Billy Williams coming up, Santo. And, um, so when he went to St. Louis, he got injured, and uh, his career kind of fizzled after that. But, uh, but yeah, you're, you're right. He's a forgotten guy. He made the all-star team one year. So he was a, mm-hmm. a solid player for him. So he'd be uh, worthwhile, so worthwhile looking him up and interviewing him. This next question I have for you uh, relates to Ernie Banks, but I, I guess it, it pertains more to baseball in general today, too. Um, in 1955, Banks said, I'm different from those that swing hard, can't follow the pitch if I try to slug. Uh, but he had four straight 40 home run seasons. Do you think that there's anything to be said for uh, uh, the approach that batters took then as, uh, as opposed to the, uh, the the swing plane approach that they take now? Oh, yeah, there's no question. Um, you know, you see the stats every day that how many strikeouts every year they set a new record for more strikeouts than before. You know, back back in the 50s, the the sluggers, the guys who supposedly swung from their heels and would give up a strikeout so they could hit a home run, they might strike out 80, 90 times. You know, it was rare for a guy to strike out 100 back then. Yeah, you, you know, everybody gets 100 strikeouts by midseason nowadays. You know, of course, every relief pitcher throws 100 miles an hour and lots of other uh, things, too. But uh, So the the approach was different back then. Hitters were, uh, most of the time, they were a little embarrassed if you struck out. You didn't really want to strike out. People considered that a, you know, a bad thing. But so uh, Ernie had a, you know, he wasn't the classic muscle-bound slugger. He had a short, quick stroke. And then that was the big debate for years. Where where the where's the power come from? Because if you look at look at pictures of him, I mean the guy's got no muscles. His chest is as flat as his waist. He's got no pectoral muscles at all. You know how's he hit hit, hit the home runs at? But uh, you know his hands were big, and he hit. You know everybody always pointed to the wrist, but uh, he was one of the forerunners of guys that used a lighter bat too. Uh, the the year 55 when he broke out with 44 home runs, he had uh, switched in spring training uh, to Monty Urban. Uh, he used a Monty Urban's bat that was only 32 ounces and uh, really could whip that, get it around quicker, and that made a big difference for him. Now, I I heard this somewhere, and I need you to tell me if this is true, is it true that pretty much all of his home runs, but like one or two, were pulled, and he just never hit them to the opposite field? Um, I wouldn't say never. You know, he was a predominantly a pull hitter, um, and that was one thing he had the ability, uh, especially you know in his prime, he could pull about any pitch into his power field. And Ted Williams um, actually said that about Ernie that he didn't. He thought Ernie was the best he ever saw at doing that one thing, pulling, pulling a pitch into his power field, and that's what what helped a, a you know a relatively little guy hit that many homers. Um, and I'm not sure how many he you know later in his career he did go to right field more. Um, you know the the year that he won. The, the first year that he won the MVP award, the team brought in Roger Hornsby as a batting coach in spring training, and that was one thing Hornsby uh, mentioned in several articles that he worked with Ernie 
uh, was going to right field a little bit more, and uh, you know that touched off Ernie's two best years. So uh, you know he could hit the ball to any field, but he preferred to pull it if he could. Every picture, every film I see of him is always pulling, and obviously he was line drive type guy. So that's kind of why I asked that. Late in Ernie's career, like 67, 68, when he couldn't run anymore, he hit three triples in one game, and they were all pokes to right field. Interesting. So. I guess you, you think the uh, fielders just didn't position right? You think they were playing yeah. in or? Probably. Yeah, probably wasn't expecting it. But <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Well, Doug, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it, and we really enjoyed listening to what you had to say. You really taught me a lot. Could you tell the fans listening to the show um, how you can get a hold of your book? Um, well, the release date's February 15th, so uh, next Thursday it'll hit the stores. Um, of course, it's already available for all the online uh, things for pre-ordering, but, you know, it'll be on Amazon, publisher. Um, and, and I just found out that the Chicago area Costco's uh, will be carrying it too. So, um, But it should be at, at your friendly local bookstore. So it should be everywhere uh, February 15th. Sounds good. I think I'm going to pick myself up a copy. I'm really excited to read yeah. this. Doug, thanks yeah, again so much. Cups fans will like it. Well, yeah. I uh, appreciate you inviting me on. I enjoy talking about Yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time tonight, Doug. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Take care, Doug. Take care. Thank you so much. That was Doug Wilson, author of Let's Play 2, The Life and Times of Ernie Banks. Wow, that was that was something. I mean, Ernie that Banks was great. Such a, that was That was awesome. Like, I can't even put into words how awesome that was. Well, uh, this is an hour-long show. So we have more to talk about. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on uh, right now in terms of proposed baseball rules. Before we get to that, I, I do want to make a quick comment on something. This is a topic we are going to be addressing later down the road, but I do want to address it now. The Cubs right now are are working on, I don't know how to say this, but I guess creating a better image right now as Probably every Cubs fan knows uh, the patriarch of the Ricketts family, Joe Ricketts. Uh, he sent some very disturbing and disgusting emails a few years ago, and they were just kind of brought to the public. Tom Ricketts, the son, and others have denounced his comments and make it clear that the Cubs are not about bigotry and discrimination. And this is not going to just go away, as it shouldn't, and a lot of people are affected by it. It's it's really disheartening as a fan to hear this kind of thing and see this kind of thing. Um, so we'll just we'll see how it progresses as we go into spring training, because pitchers and catchers do report soon, and you know, unfortunately there's going to be a little bit of a dark cloud hovering over uh, the Cubs fandom right now as we enter spring training. So uh, I don't know if you have anything to say on that, but I just wanted to put that out in the air right now. Yeah, I I, I don't have. Uh too much to say on that. I, I thought Tom Ricketts' statement on the matter was, was well presented. I I liked what he had to say. And I think it's worth mentioning that uh, that Joe Ricketts, as Tom said, doesn't really actually have anything to do with the operation of the Chicago Cubs. Not that that makes it any better for, uh, for the people that this hurt, but uh, I, I think the Cubs as an organization have done a good job of being uh, – an inclusive franchise, uh, and so I think actions speak louder than words. I think they'll continue to to do so, and I'm sure that they'll they'll do something uh, towards making amends for this. And I I think that in due time this will this will blow over and we'll move on. Yeah, so we'll see how it progresses, and we certainly hope that any fans who are hurt by this. You know, we are thinking of you. We really are because, you know, as Cubs fans, we want all the community to come together and all feel welcome at Wrigley Field because, you know, being part of a Cubs fan is having the Cubs as part of your life. And, you know, this is this is very hard for some people. And we want every Cubs fan listening to the show knowing that no matter who you are, no matter what you believe in, we accept you as 
part of the Cubs family, and we always will. All right, so let's move on to some controversial things in terms of baseball rules. The DH, that word that some people love, that some people hate, and there's some really strong opinions on the DH versus not having it in the National League, but it looks like from the sounds of it, it's looking more and more possible that we are going to be getting a DH in the National League. Adam, I don't know if you want to go on and rant, so if that's what you want to do, I'm going to just kind of step back and uh, let you do that. If not, if you just want to start a conversation, then so be it. But anyway, right now the floor is yours. Yeah, I, I hate it. I hate it so much, uh, especially the DH rule. I mean, there's a few things they propose. The DH rule is is the absolute worst. Uh, but it sounds like I'm just going to have to get over it because the, it seems like sooner or later there is going to be a designated hitter in the National League, and there's just nothing we can do about that. I hate it. Uh, it's not going to make me stop watching baseball. I don't. There's not a lot that could make me do that. But uh, I, I, the DH is it's terrible. It's not baseball. It's just it's not how. I think they should just abolish it altogether. I don't think the American League should have it either. I mean, it's not like it's – people act like the DH is this, this ancient part of the game that's always been around and the, the NL just needs to adopt it. But and the reality is the DH didn't come along until like the early 70s. Uh, so the, the DH isn't even close to being as old as baseball is. Um, I, I, I just hate it. I, I hate that it takes away part of the strategy of the game, I think. I mean, this would be – uh, like in the NBA, if you, you fouled somebody and, and, and you could just send whoever you wanted to the free throw line, whoever was better uh, at shooting free throws. That's what it. That's what it's like, I think. I think that's the baseball equivalent. Um, I hate it. I, I think it takes away from the strategy of the game. And I, I think this has a lot to do with pitchers just being lazy, too, and, and not focusing on their hitting at all, because I don't think it's that hard. Uh, to just be adequate at it if you're a major league baseball player. Because if you're at that level, then it probably means that at some point in your life you were good at hitting. Uh, especially in high school, uh, it's not it's usually not good enough to just be good at one thing. you got to be, if you're a pitcher, you need to be a good hitter too if you actually want to play. So it's not like it's something that they couldn't do early on. It's something that they just dropped altogether once they got to a certain level. But yeah, I, I can't say enough bad things about the D. Uh, and I'll leave it at that. You know, I've always kind of been a more pro-NL type person. I've always thought if you're pitching, if you're on the field, you should bat. I, I've always kind of leaned that way. I wouldn't really protest or be overly mad about the DH coming to the NL. If it happens, it happens. I would look at it and say, you know what, it probably benefits the Cubs in a number of ways. So I guess I would just look at it from a positive standpoint. That's not the rule that really riled me up today, though. What did rile me up was the proposition of having a pitcher, no matter if you're a reliever or a starter, have a three-batter minimum. I think yeah. that is the single stupidest rule I have ever heard. Why would you make a reliever have to face a certain amount of guys? Tell me this. Let's say your reliever comes in, he's not throwing strikes, he's all over the place, and usually those are early warning signs of, hey, he doesn't have it today, get him out of there. Oh, but wait, he just walked the guy on four pitches, he's not close, we want to make a change, we want to play a matchup. No, you got to keep him in for two more batters. That, that I mean, takes yeah. away so much from the manager and can cause so many potential disasters. I think it's completely dumb. Yeah, it's it's insane. It's it's just sheer stupidity. And the the thing about that rule too, that proposed rule, that would be really hard to enforce. Uh, right. because, I mean, it's kind of murky how you define what an injury is, uh, because that right. that'd be the only time you could take him out is is an injury if he hasn't pitched to three batters yet. I mean, you could you could go out and just say, oh, I, I'm really crampy. I can hardly move this arm now. You could just lie about that and and get pulled from the game. And I think a lot of teams would go that route, and then you have to figure out how did the MLB figure out if they were actually telling the truth or not? How do you discipline somebody who tries to get around the rules like that? And, yeah, this is just another way uh, that, that takes away from teams actually having to strategize a little bit, and all in the name of shaving a minute or two off the runtime. Do you really think 
a three batter minimum is going to suddenly bring millions of more people into ballparks and watching them no, on TV. Absolutely not. Exactly. No. And that's why that's why I hate these rule changes to begin with. Not just because these these specific rules suck, which they do, but because if I think they start implementing these, I think it'll snowball into more stupid rules. Because people nowadays, especially on social media, they're so fickle about this. Uh, they overreact to things that just don't happen all that often. It, but, it, but it happens on the grand stage, and we make a big deal out of it. I, I don't know if you remember uh, a year or two ago uh, when the Cubs walked Bryce Harper a, a ridiculous amount of times in one series. And, it, and, and after that happened, everybody was in an uproar. Oh, my God, MLB needs to do something about this. they gotta, they got to make some sort of rule to prevent this happening. But that kind of thing doesn't happen all the time. You know, just just because you, you hit a bump in the road, uh, something less than ideal happens, you, you don't change the structure of the game. The game's been around since the, the 1860s, for crying out loud. It's survived this long. I, I would hate to see the Twitter era ruin it. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think baseball wants to make some changes just because one or two things happen or just because they think it's going to make a huge difference when it's really not. I mean, look at last year. We had the limitation on the pitching uh, – or not the pitching changes, the uh, the mound visits. It really didn't end up being that much of a difference. It didn't really change much. But, you know, no. a rule like that or a rule like uh, the intentional walk, those don't really they, – they, they made – yeah, they, they really made no difference. And it, it, like I've said before, it, I didn't actually care. I mean, it's not important to me – to me to see a pitcher throw four balls to, for an intentional walk. I don't really care all that much that I don't get to see that anymore. It's just the fact that something like that, I, I think, is going to lead into more stupid rules. Uh, right. Because, uh, look, and I've said this plenty of times before, too, if MLB wants to cut down uh, on the runtime of games, stop taking 15 minutes on an instant replay to make a call that is obvious after the first two looks. It's annoying to hear all these proposed rule changes, and look, I know you hate the DH with a passion. For me, I think a proposal of a DH in the NL is something I would much rather have over a bunch of these other propositions, like the pitch clock or the three batter minimum. I I think that at least the DH has been a part of baseball, even if you may not consider it to be traditional baseball. It has been a part of baseball, and it's it's not nearly as ludicrous as some of these other rule changes. At least pitch, that's the way I look at it. Pitch clock infuriates me. Pitch the pitch clock idea infuriates me because I, I, I since I was a little kid, I have always loved the fact that baseball is the lone professional sport uh, that has nothing to do with the clock. There is no, yeah. there's no sort of time. There's no sort of clock. I, I absolutely love that about baseball, and I, I think that a pitch clock would be such a detriment to the game. Maybe you'll bring in a few more young people that'll watch because of a pitch clock. I kind of doubt it, but I think you'd do I, that. I think too. if you do that, you you isolate the fan base you've already got too. And I I hate to see baseball take away from its legacy doing something like that. There should be no sort of clocks whatsoever in baseball. I I almost feel like MLB proposing all these rule changes and making all this controversy is doing more damage than good. It's it's annoying baseball fans. It's making them it's, a little more irritated. It's, it's bad just, PR. If you yeah. stop, then, yeah. And it makes you look like you're insecure about yourself. It makes you look like you're a broken system that doesn't know how to fix itself. That's not a way you want to sell yourself to other people. Right, yeah. I mean, it's it 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 just makes the league look terrible because I don't think the league, I don't think baseball is in such a bad state. I I think, but when you when you have articles coming out all the time and people talking about it on on national TV shows all the time of how can we improve baseball, how can we speed it up, uh, it portrays it as it as this game that is desperate for, for viewers. And I don't think that's the case, but that's the way it comes off when you're constantly talking about how we can change it. Exactly. And exactly. that You said it perfectly. I think that if baseball wants to keep introducing new things, I've loved what they've done with some of the advanced analytics. Uh, you know, I know you're not the biggest fan of Launch Angle, but I, at least 
to me, introducing new ways to look at the game is a lot better than saying, hey, we need to change all this because we know our own product isn't good. Hey, we need more people to come look at our product. We're not really uh, happy with it, and we're looking at ways to make it better, but come on, look at us. But if you want to say, hey, here's our product, here's a new perspective to look at it, I think that's a little different. Well, and here's here's a counter to that, to the launch angle thing. Um, the launch angle era has resulted in more home runs. That's true. Uh, and people people like home runs, seemingly. Uh, but it's also resulted, as we talked earlier with Doug, it's also resulted in uh, way more strikeouts. And I, one thing that I think the launch angle has taken away from the game less base runners. More home runs means more strikeouts, which means more, which means less base runners. And... I don't think people would necessarily be so upset about longer run times uh, in these games if there was more action going on, if there was less strikeouts, more base runners, more intense situations, uh, pitchers you know, sweating bullets trying to keep runners on late in the game in a tight game. Uh, so that's one area where I think the launch angle thing has sort of hurt the game. But I also think people really like home runs. I mean, look at the steroid era. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm glad to be over and done with that. I I, I hope it should be. It's harder now to get away with that kind of thing. But uh, I don't know. I I think that I think we would be less inclined to complain about three-hour games if there was you know really uh, interesting things happening all the way through. I mean, no one could deny there, there's less base runners now than there ever used to be. Um, I, honestly, I think the the lack of stolen bases isn't great for the game either. I mean, that used to be a huge part of the game. It was an exciting part of the game, and it's it's not something you see very often anymore. It's rare that you see a team uh, steal a bunch of bases in a season. It's rare that you see a guy steal 30, 40 bases in a season. It just doesn't happen anymore. No, it really doesn't. I mean, that's just kind of the way baseball shifted the power and the, the slugging and the strikeouts. Uh, you know, well, I, I think part of it – It'll be interesting to see, I think, if it keeps moving further and further away from that, from stolen bases and, and just trying to get on base, if it, or if it circles back. I don't know what you think about that. Well, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, here's the other thing. We know launch angle, we know what the purpose is to launch the ball. We know that. And we know that strikeout increases is greatly due to that. But I also think that it's hard to get back to the way it was, even with or without launch angle. You're still going to see a lot of strikeouts and a lot less balls in play, I feel like, because more and more pitchers are throwing harder. Right. I mean, I I could see a team figuring it out, though. I mean, it would be really cool uh, if, if, if one baseball team sort of revolutionized the way the game is being played today by going back to how some teams did it in the past. I mean, look at the Golden State Warriors. They're the first team do away with the whole the center power, uh, power basketball, play at the rim, and they, they did the whole the spot-up three thing, and now all these teams are doing it. Uh, so it, it only takes one team to crack the code to do something different, and everybody else gets on board. So I don't think it's uh, Im- implausible. Uh, that we could at some point see, see teams go back to uh, the mentality of, of trying to get on base as much as possible rather than hit a home run every time up. Well, you know, I think that it, it will happen eventually because this is how baseball is. We see peaks and we see drops in this kind of thing. You look at the way the game has changed over the years. You know, baseball started as you just you hit the ball where they weren't and then Babe Ruth came along, and then the Sluggers came along with him, and you saw the increase. Then you saw, like, the 70s, it really got back to kind of the, the small ball, and then the steroid era came, and then you kind of saw lull again. And then the past two years, you're seeing a big increase. So it does go up and down. Yeah. I just don't think the transition is going to be as quick or anywhere close to being soon. Well, I mean, and here's here's the other thing, too. I, I mean – like you said, people want home runs. That's that's what baseball fans seem to want today is more home runs. But I, I also think that more home runs means that home runs are less special. I mean, because you, 
you think back to the early origins of baseball, even back then when it wasn't all about launch angle, there were still guys hitting five, six, seven hundred home runs. It still happened, uh, but those guys were unique and special. And so now I think now when you've got guys like Max Muncie hitting 35 home runs, it just doesn't mean as much now. Well, no, I mean, home runs really became glorified with Babe Ruth. I, I would assume that Babe Ruth was, I mean, you read the history books, he was the first one to swat as many home runs as he did. And that was probably when they were really starting to get big. And then you saw guys chasing home run records like the steroid area. You saw Barry Bonds. And even years ago when you had Hank Aaron, though I feel like, to your point, you're not really going to see those records be broken because we've outed steroids and a bunch of other things. And even with launch angle, even with all this, is anyone going to hit 70 plus home runs in a season again? I highly doubt it. Is anyone going to pass Hank Aaron or Barry Bonds? You know, maybe someday, but I don't think we're going to be alive to see it. Uh, So yeah, you know, that is an interesting point, but uh, you know, I, I feel like just looking at pace of play, the problem isn't the length of games. It's what goes on between the action. And really, I don't think there's any easy solution to that, nor do I think is there one that makes much sense. That's just kind of how baseball is. I mean, and yeah, and I'm not going to deny that, that some of these guys, they, they could speed it up a little bit. I mean, pitchers do tend to they, – they, they do they, – some of them take a long time. I mean, Pedro Baez, my God, the guy's unwatchable. It's It's torture to watch him. Pitch in a baseball game. Many he Cubs takes so long. Steve Traxel, he was called the human rain delay for a reason. Right, right. I, I just think that MLB, they need to find some sort of way to incentivize these guys to, to pick it up a little bit without restructuring the game. I mean, they, they've done it once before, so it should be possible to do again. I, I just don't understand why, why, why now all of a sudden we need to scrap it and just redo everything. Um, and, and the other thing I don't get is that an NBA game and an NFL game, those, those, those things run just about as long as an MLB game does. So I don't understand why, why every other professional sports game can go three hours and we don't say anything, but, oh, my God, baseball needs to be two hours or it's just so boring. But it, it, it blows my mind. I think the reason is, uh, to, to the point of, like, say, basketball, basketball is in constant motion. Right. There's constant action. That's I, I think that's why. That's not a big a deal there. And again, yeah, that kind of stuff doesn't bother me, but I think for other people, I get what they're saying. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I th- they need to find some sort of way. That, I, there's got to be some sort of measure they can take to speed things up a little bit without without making all these ridiculous rule changes, especially the right. clock. I, I want nothing to do with the clock. Yeah, get that out of here. That and the whole three batter minimum thing. I just I think that's so absurd. Right. I mean, well, and I mean that's another area in which you know, baseball has changed. There never really used to be uh, the relief pitcher system that we see now, where you got got you got four or five guys pitching in one game or more. Uh, but yeah, we have to I, I just face one batter and one batter only. Yeah, but I, I just think that that if they were to implement that rule, it would it would get abused, and it would be it would be really easy to dance around, and then we'd have to deal with all sorts of excuses and complaints on who did and who didn't follow the rules, and it would it would just be a never-ending circus of confusion, and I think we'd all be better off without it. I agree with you there, and I could go on and on about this topic, but we are just about out of time on climbing the ivy. We had a really dang good show today. We want to thank Doug Wilson again for coming aboard and talking about his upcoming book about Ernie Banks and telling us more about Ernie Banks. I don't know about you, but I certainly learned a lot. Yeah, that was a great discussion. Really good time. It really was. So spring training is right around the corner, and next week we will be closer to the baseball season. So until next time, he is Adam. I am Alex. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.
space. Some regions are vast and empty, other areas we call closets. Fortunately, Kevin from the Container Store has answers. Hmm, right. Kevin, what gives you the power over space? I'd say Alpha Customizable Closets. With free design and Alpha's adjustable shelving and drawers, I can create space in any size closet. Kevin, master of space and closets. Or just Kevin. Plus, right now, save 30% on Alpha and installation and earn up to $500 in credit through February 10th. At the Container Store, where space comes from. Where is that music coming from? The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing a car that's got style and substance to spare. The all-new RAV4 Limited. Featuring a sophisticated, muscular new exterior and available options like a premium JBL audio system and panoramic roof. The all-new RAV4 Limited. Toyota. Let's go places. JBL and Clarifier. Registered trademarks of Harman International Industries Incorporated.